0: Yesterday I was up before the dawn And I really have enjoyed my stay But I must be moving on Like a king without a castle Like a queen
1: Hello everyone and welcome to On Location. It's um, 6.45 a.m. and on one hand it feels a little early to be in a dimly lit bar, but that really depends on whom you ask. You know, something that my wife reminded me of about bars is that some of them open early in the morning because, you know, 7 a.m. isn't the start of the workday for everybody, for a good deal of the population, it's actually the end of the workday. So here at the Foxfire Room and other bars around town, you'll inevitably see a handful of folks who just clocked out of work. And at this time of the year, mid-December, college and NFL football uh, draws a crowd early in the morning, especially on the West Coast. Now, the Foxfire Room is a neighborhood favorite bar in Valley Village in the San Fernando Valley. The bar opened on Magnolia Boulevard in 1962 and it's been in the family of the current owner Mark since 1977 when his father bought it And in 1985, Mark took over managing the bar at the age of 21 when his father passed away. Now, it's really no secret that the Foxfire Room was used in Paul Thomas Anderson's 1999 San Fernando Valley Mosaic Magnolia. And if you go online and you type the name of the bar in, you're sure to find a number of websites that point out the fact that this is where William H. Macy's character, a grown-up, down-on-his-luck, ex-game-show star, quiz kid Donnie Smith professes his love for a hunky, braces-wearing bartender named Brad. Back in 1997, two years prior to Magnolia, I was really flipping out over Anderson's second feature film, Boogie Nights, and I can't really recall how many times I saw it in theaters, but it was a handful. That opening reveal of the neon sign, the Reseda Theater neon sign, punctuated by the opening beats of The Best of My Love, by the emotions, really sent a jolt through me like no other movie had done before, uh, and the day it came out on video, I was at my Blockbuster video, ready to rent it. I bought a used VHS copy of Boogie Nights from that same Blockbuster, and it was the first DVD I bought alongside my first DVD player, when DVDs were $30, 40 and DVD players were $400, $500. Now, as Tarantino's Jackie Brown was to Pulp Fiction, I was highly anticipating Anderson's next film, And when Magnolia came out, I was completely enthralled by its combination of comic, tragic, and otherworldly elements. And because of the film, I also fell in love with the music of Amy Mann, so much so that I remember standing outside the TLA Theater in Philadelphia, hoping I could score an extra ticket to her sold-out concert, and I did. Now, until recently, I hadn't really watched Magnolia in a long time, and something that really struck me upon researching was the date on which it was released. It came out December 8th, 1999 making Magnolia one of the last films to come out at the end of the century that essentially gave rise to and saw the evolution of the art form of motion pictures. And I think what we see from the film, from beginning to end, speaks to that. It even opens with a prologue in which the first shots were filmed with a silent era motion picture camera. After the big-budget blockbusters of the 80s, Magnolia also capped off a decade of groundbreaking filmmaking, and I just want to name some of the movies that were released during that era. Pulp Fiction. Fargo, Reservoir Dogs, El Mariachi, Kids, Being John Malkovich, Boys in the Hood, Buffalo 66, Welcome to the Dollhouse, Swingers, Rushmore, Train Spotting, Pie, Clerks. It really was without a doubt a great time for watching movies. And though most of the top critics were unanimous in their praise for Magnolia, not everybody loved it when it, when it came out. And speaking of Clerks, An Entertainment Weekly article that came out in January of 2000 reported that a person who identified himself as clerk's director Kevin Smith posted on his website, quote, They sent me an Academy screener DVD this week. I'll never watch it again, but I will keep it. I'll keep it right on my desk as a constant reminder that a bloated sense of self-importance is the most unattractive quality in a person or their work. He also likened the film to, quote, a cinematic root canal, Now, fans of Magnolia went a little crazy, basically firing back that Smith's films were technically incompetent. Uh, Smith did get a little jab in at those fans, however, in his 2001 film Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, when the two characters beat up a teenage movie blogger who goes by the moniker of Magnolia fan, and that person has posted disparagingly about Jay and Silent Bob online. Um, Later on in Smith's An Evening with Kevin Smith, One man Show, he recounted meeting Paul Thomas Anderson at a doctor's office when they were both getting physicals before making their next film. And Paul Thomas Anderson was very cordial. And Smith said because of that, he felt really bad making those comments online uh, about a year or so earlier. Now, Ian, we, we've talked about Magnolia a little bit. And you, you told me you didn't really love it so much when, when it came out.
0: Exactly. I, it was a victim of my expectations after seeing Boogie Nights, which I absolutely loved. And I went in and it didn't meet those expectations and I held, you know, I resented it. And then it wasn't until later, you know, even watching it again this week, it just, it was, I wasn't sophisticated enough to see it was, it was going to be different and that's okay. And I, you know, I appreciate it much more now than I did then.
1: And something also you said to me though, was that with age too, yes. uh, it formed a different appreciation
0: well you know i mean there's age and experience professionally i see the technique a little bit more you know i mean i was in college and the you know you, what do you know then about relationships and tragedy and all those other things and i remember being angry in the theater watching it you know it was much much more pleasant and you know actually joyful experience watching it again
1: how do you think the locations between boogie nights and magnolia differ in terms of
0: uh, i don't know Are they photographed in a different way approached differently you know, the one thing about Boogie Nights is you start wide and you have these long tracking shots. And I, one thing I noticed in Magnolia uh, was that they start oftentimes tight on the, the character. You know, for instance, in that tracking shot at the studio, they start the rain, you know, tight on the kid and his father. And they never really do a wide establishing shot. In fact, my wife and I got into a little bit of an argument about what an establishing shot is because I was... I I was telling her I don't think there's that many in the movie, and she was like, "No, no, no, there is." Uh, But it's it was fascinating because it's there's there's clearly Thomas Paul Anderson in there, but it's Paul
1: Thomas Anderson. I'm sorry,
0: Paul (laughs) Thomas Anderson. It's early. I need a drink. (laughs) Uh, But it's different, and you know, it. I did at the time. I wasn't uh, I wasn't ready for that.
1: Well, Paul Thomas Anderson grew up here in the San Fernando Valley, and it's very apparent in Boogie Nights. Magnolia, even Punch drunk love, right that's that's certainly a valley movie. There's some great valley locations in that as well. Now, according to the video diary on the DVD of Magnolia, a shooting began january twelfth, nineteen ninety nine and it wrapped june twenty fourth nineteen ninety nine and uh, at about a hundred and three days out of seventy nine. So there you go right <laughs> there you go right there. and my guest today is responsible for amassing the locations featured over those 103 days and three-hour LA epic that is Magnolia. He's worked on films like Scream 2, What Lies Beneath, Road to Perdition. He's done TV shows like Shameless, Lethal Weapon, and what, about 150 episodes of CSI New York? I'd like to welcome my guest, location manager, Tim Hillman. Good Thank morning. Thank you for coming. Good morning. Thanks for being. <laughs> Thanks for getting here so early today. Yeah, I appreciate well. it. But like we talked about, that's nothing new, right? For you to be uh, no. up at a location early.
2: No, this is like I said, this is lunch for me. <laughs> I'm halfway through the day.
1: Yeah. Right. Now, throughout the making of Magnolia, and you see it in this behind-the-scenes documentary, there seemed to be this running joke about how long the film was going to be once it was actually. Done. Do you recall that, and you remember what your feelings were about about that?
2: Well, my first reaction was: I read a script that was 195 pages long. Most scripts are for a feature, of 95 to 110. So, what are we going to do with these extra 85 pages? You know, um, but it was just brilliant. You know, my reaction to the whole thing was: I've got a lot of work to do.
1: Yeah. Well, um, also, too, did you find? Because, you know, it, at least in film school, okay, they teach you don't write camera moves. Don't write that stuff in the script. You know, you have to express it a different way. But Paul Thomas Anderson, being Paul Thomas Anderson, the great writer, director he is, um, he everything missed, is very he,
2: detailed. Yeah, he missed that class.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> every, every shot was was Paul. I mean, Bob Ellsworth's a great shooter, great light, paints with light. But the shots, those were all Paul. That steady cam shot that you mentioned, I started laughing. I tried to stay quiet when you were talking about it because he almost broke the steady cam operator. You know, he, the guy, this is back when we're shooting on film. And that shot, I think was 10 or 11 minutes long. And they had a thousand foot mag on the camera. That's a lot of weight to be carrying. And they did, I think, seven takes on that. The shot through the studio? The shot through the studio. They, they start outside in the rain. They come all the way down the corridor, all the way down the next corridor, into the elevator, up the elevator, around the second floor, back down the elevator, into the green room, around the green room, and up to the door to the studio. And then the studio was on stage.
1: Did you know right off with the amount of pages in the script that it was probably going to go well over what the projected amount of shoot days were? Or at what point did you know like this is, this is going to go on for well,
2: a it while? was Well, it was my second time working with the producer, and, and I knew that he had a good handle on things. And, but it was, it was um, Daniel's third time working with Paul, because he did Hard Eight as well as, as Boogie Nights. And uh, he didn't really let on that he knew what was going on. You know, he kind of had an idea what he was into with Paul. And I'm sure he prepped the studio going, you know, we could go over here. And of course, magically we did. But I just knew I had a lot of work to do. You know, I broke down the script and broke down the number of locations and the number of pages inside each location. It was like, holy crap. (laughs) We've got a lot to do. And then working with Paul, who I consider Paul a genius. I mean, I think he's... 195 pages. We got one rewrite, and that was a name change. That was it. I mean, our our script was white with a little bit of blue, and that was no rainbow of colors out of 195 pages, and uh, he knew exactly what he wanted, which was great. It was also a curse because he knew exactly what he wanted. I mentioned earlier when, when we were looking for Jimmy Gator's house, went through 65 houses to find one house. And I heard on the Boogie Nights house to find the actual Boogie Nights house. I think they went through about 75 or 80.
1: Well, speaking of that Boogie Nights house, which I know was a, a task yeah. to find. And actually, from what I understand, speaking to that location team and production designer, um, it was sort of a fluke the way it happened because they were in a the scout van and this folder fell on the ground. And Paul picked it up and there was a picture of this house that I think everybody thought had been Uh, disregarded Mm -hmm. but he saw it and said what is what is this house and then they went and because at that point they were settled on a house that nobody i think was really that jazzed about about, you know and then they found sort of the perfect house in west covina is there or was it the jimmy gator house is there a location on magnolia that was just as tough
2: Hmm. well he wanted to shoot the lamplighter but we couldn't get the lamplighter to work and we scouted just about every, and, and we were also trying to substitute for the Fox Fire Room. Because at first, he wasn't going to get the Fox Fire Room. It took a lot of negotiating to get into here. Um, and to get them to shut down for the number of days that we needed. But the, the restaurant was a tough one, and we ended up at the, uh, how was it? The Bright Spot at the corner of Rosemead and Valley Boulevard in Rosemead. And that was our diner you know, where the little kid goes and after he's wet his pants and everything. And
1: right, and that scene's cut out of the film. Gone. But, but there are shots of it in the behind-the-scenes doc, right. and I think I sent those to you. And I I hadn't watched the documentary in a long time, so I completely forgot about it. But it, it there are quite a few scenes in the script at the lamplighter, yeah, for sure. Well, you brought it up, speaking of the Foxfire Room here, because we spoke to Mark, who's the current, who's the owner, he was mm-hmm. the owner then. He was. And he told us that, yeah, he wasn't, terribly enthralled about the idea of you guys shooting here um so can you tell me what those negotiations were like and also too why was it so important to come to the foxfire room
2: because that's what paul wanted period (laughs) that's what that's what paul wanted and paul wanted to shoot here and he felt he couldn't get the scenes the way he wanted them unless he was here in this room and it was just a lot of back and forth with the owner. And the producer went and talked to him privately, and I went to talk to him, and Paul went to talk to him, and I went to talk to him. And you know, we just kept hammering the poor guy and raising the price, <laughs> which yes. always helps. And we got our three days here, and I think it was three. Three So Yeah, three and a half. It was, it was pretty brutal.
1: But did you look at it-
2: other bars? I mean, you oh, feel God. like you had to, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, but I mean, but even though this was the place, I don't think there is a bar between here and Winnetka that we didn't scout and show pictures to and, and take Paul to, and like, yeah, this could work. I want the Foxfire Room. What the guy from Foxfire say? Is he ready yet? Can we go there now? <laughs> no, Paul, we're still working on it.
1: Like the narrator says in the movie, you know, was the fact that the Foxfire Room. That it was on Magnolia, just something that happened, or like was it a coincidence, or was that not just a matter of
2: chance? I I don't I'm I can't speak for Paul, but I'm sure the fact that it was on Magnolia had something to do with it, and the fact that he grew up here and this was the place, you know, I'm sure that all tied into his grand idea of the entire movie.
1: When was the last time you were at the Foxfire? Right?
2: The last day we shot here.
1: No desire to come.
2: (laughs) come You know, it took so much to get in here, and it was so much work. And then just being here, the Foxfire Room wasn't the main problem. We had to convince all of these neighbors that we were going to park a feature film in their parking lot behind their businesses for, you know, a week. Because we had to prep, and we had to restore, and to change all the lighting around, set dress three days of filming was nothing. Yeah. And uh, it really took a lot of work to get the neighborhood wanting us here. But I think we left them okay. I think we could come back if we wanted to.
1: Now, Mark seemed to remember that not too much was changed, but one detail he, he did remember was the Frogger arcade game, which was put in here mm-hmm. right behind William H. Macy, which of course makes complete sense. Yes. Um, it's a 1981 arcade, uh, upright arcade game. And, you know, I don't think Uh, I ever really noticed it before until, you know, we talked to Mark a little bit. And this is sort of the perfect time, even on the way over here, it's misting a little bit, raining a little bit. It's sort of the perfect time of year to record this episode because it's raining through almost the entirety of the film. Uh, Yeah, I know. (laughs) Well, what comes into play that makes your job more challenging to do a movie, not just where it's raining in one scene? but through the entire movie.
2: You just have to know what movie rain is and know what the results are after the movie rain is over because that's a lot of water being dumped on the ground all at once. And if you're at somebody's house, it's the end of their lawn because you're going to walk across it while it's soaking wet and it becomes a mud pit. So you're replacing lawns and good stuff like that. And then driving down, we shut down Laurel Canyon Boulevard and put... 10,000 silicone frogs on the street and drove over them, which the sound was, it sounded like we were driving over real frogs. I don't know if they got the sound in in the movie or if they made it up, but the actual sound of the car driving over the frogs was pretty amazing.
1: One thing that really strikes me with the rain is that, you know, in other films or television shows, and I'm not necessarily knocking them, but you can... You know, you can see sometimes when a rain machine's being used and there's just rain, like, in the foreground. Mm-hmm. Or you can tell they shot it at a time of day when the sun was out and there's dappled light, but they color correct it so it's blue or something yeah. like that. But there's so much depth to the rain in Magnolia, and I'm wondering how that was achieved. I mean, were there just
2: rain machines everywhere? Well, we had Industrial Light and Magic, and we had Joe Letteri from Industrial Light and Magic, who was... I think in his fledgling years then, you know, now he's become the guy, you know, for uh, visual effects. There was one shot when they're pulling up in front of the daughter's house uh, where mom crashes her jaguar. And if you look down that street, you will see all the trees moving because the frogs are falling. (laughs) We had to pay the apartment guy $10,000 so that we could hook wires up to the branches of his trees with pneumatic hammers. That would jerk the limbs like there was a frog falling through there so and that was at least a half a block away you know so you're sitting there in the camera outside with the car coming in and you're seeing you know we tried to do as much practical as we could to save money for the actual visual effects we needed
1: when you read the script, what did you think of the raining frogs and I'm not talking necessarily just in terms of locations but just storytelling wise
2: oh I thought it was Brilliant. I mean, it's just the whole thing. You, you read it and you get through and you go, Holy crap, what did I just read? What is this? You know, I mean, guys getting picked up by super scoopers and dropped in a tree, and, 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 you know, the kid getting shot by his mom as he flies by the window trying to kill himself. You know? But he lands in the net. He would have survived if his mom hadn't shot him. <laughs> right. You know, um, and all of this stuff is tied together in the end. And he brings a resolution to it. And you go, oh, okay. That's where it's going. Makes you think.
1: Yeah. Uh, You worked on uh, a sort of guilty pleasure movie of mine, and that is Drop Dead Fred.
2: It's the first movie I ever keyed.
1: And was that in Minnesota? I
2: think I researched, right? It was in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And uh, they, they were into production. The location team they had wasn't getting the job done I came in on the second day of filming and they sent me to the room my room to read my script and I came down and the gentleman that was going to be my assistant and we became pretty good friends was this young kid named Bob Graff who went on to produce for the Coen Brothers after oh, yeah. after me um, but I had him take me to all the locations that we had we had about 15 or 20 locations around Minneapolis and St. Paul and we ended up down on the Mississippi River just below St. Paul at this marina next to a riverboat and we're, we're on the pier and the two of us have almost got this pier underwater and we're going to be there in three days filming they had no support they had no safety, they had no place to cater and it was happening in three days and I was smoking at the time, I lit a cigarette I got down on my haunches, I look up at Bob and I go we're fucked <laughs> We're done I don't know if you have to bloop this or not No, no Okay No but, uh, and, and three days and later And, you know, 36 hours straight without sleep We had a barge And we had water patrol And we had, you know, a dock that wouldn't go underwater So we could take a 450-pound dolly out there without swimming And uh, we got it done It was a great show It was a fun show you know, Rick Mayall was nuts <laughs> I mean, just nuts. Phoebe Cates could not have been sweeter, you know. And she was a real cheerleader for the whole thing. And then we had Princess Leia. That's right. <laughs> That's right. What more can you ask for? Now, were you based in Minnesota at the time? Like, no. how did you? <laughs> That's kind of hilarious. I had started my career in Chicago. I met my wife in Chicago. lived there for ten years. Got into this because I had been a a real estate broker. And my sister in law said be a location manager and convinced my wife that I had to move to LA if I was going to have a career and we had been here about two months and I got sent back to Minnesota you know for three months to finish the film so
0: what did your sister in law see in you I I don't know that my her sister liked me (laughs) but no to to say you should be a location manager
2: well I, I I was a rock and roll musician for about 17 years And I always joke that if I couldn't be a rock star, I'd sell real estate, you know. And I sent out my demo tapes and got very nice rejection letters and was with my wife and decided I had to get a real job, so I became a real estate salesperson and then a broker after that. And I was making more money than I'd ever made in my life and having a great time and I hated all the people in the business because they're all weasels. Even worse than the movie business which is hard to believe. And I was lamenting this to my sister-in-law one day at lunch, and she said, well, be a location manager, because we deal with contracts and dealing with people and matching people to properties, and, you know. So it, it had that time together. Plus I had the entertainment background, sort of, from performing in all these clubs and things, so I could understand that side of it. But I didn't know you could work in the movie business. I thought you won a prize, and you got to go on set with all the famous people and... You know, that's how that happened. If
1: you don't mind me asking, how old were you when you switched careers? I
2: was 33 years old when I changed. You know, I'd, I'd already had half a career, you know, which didn't work out, and then I had another career that was working out great and I didn't like it, so. My wife, God bless her, let me change. I started as a $50 a day PA, Yeah, you know, after being a real estate broker in a Century 21 office with 30 associates. I've been really, really lucky in my career. I decided to do this and, and I got, I came to California and got lucky and got sent to do Drop Dead Fred which got me into being a key on features and, and you know, I've done some really great stuff. I've, also on my resume I've got Saved by the Bell wedding in Las Vegas. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's classic stuff. You know, and, and I've gotten to work on Road to Perdition which almost killed me and, 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 Castaway and, and Magnolia. You know, Magnolia was a brilliant film. It's really nice to be affiliated with something like that. People should be as lucky as me.
1: Do huh? you think that the skills that you, you picked up doing real, es- real estate um, gives you maybe a, a different outlook or a different approach to doing the location job than
2: maybe others? My wife and I have this discussion all the time because she's now a, a, an assistant superintendent in the Duarte Unified School District. But we both feel that the way we deal with people, all of that training came from being waiter, waitress, bartender. When you're dealing with a drunk, (laughs) and you can talk him out of gently going out of the bar because it's time for him to leave and convince him that. I I saw a great quote by Winston Churchill the other day. He said, being a diplomat is being able to tell someone to go to hell in such a way that they ask you for directions. And that pretty much (laughs) describes a location manager. We talk people into things, and then the big part is coming through on the promise that you make ahead of time. You know? Is
1: there anything specific in that regard that you remember having to do on Magnolia? I don't know. Maybe is it here at the Foxfire Room? Is it another location where you really had to do that grind and build that relationship? And
2: This was a tough one. The Jimmy Gator House, which is over in Toluca Lake, that was that was a tough one because it was an older couple. And, uh, you know, I was bringing an army into their house and we did some wacky stuff at that house I mean, we built a, a tent outside that place so we could shoot day for night that was I mean it almost had to be engineered it was so huge the, the tent was almost as big as the house and the house was big and that gentleman and his wife we had to kind of hold their hands through the whole thing and say look I know it looks crazy now don't hate me we're going to fix it you know when, when we leave when we're done if you're still unhappy we'll talk and Fortunately, he was happy at the end.
1: Do you know, was it expressed as you were scouting for this Jimmy Gator house? You said you looked at 65 houses. Correct. Did Paul express what it was that he's specifically looking for, that you had to look at so many houses?
2: It's hard with Paul because he's so locked into what he wants. And, And I would show him things and say, okay, if it's not this, but we had this feature and this feature and this feature that we were looking for what else do you need and he'd be able to give a little bit more of a and and no fault to him i mean he knew what he wanted and and it was just me trying to grasp onto what it was that he needed okay we've got the, we've got the living room that leads into the dining room that goes out to the kitchen with the skylight in the kitchen that the frog falls through what else do we need you know well we need you know the exterior to with a big expanse so that after the fire, you know, we can have the emergency vehicles and the burnt pieces of stuff out there. and That was pretty much it, was trying to trying to glean that information out of him.
1: And almost like actors, you know, in the rare opportunities I've had to interview some actors in the past, you know, in terms of working on location, you know, you, you always get sort of similar answers that working on location for actors helps put them in the mindset of the scene and the character. And not to say that other directors aren't this way, but Paul being from the Valley, it almost seems like there's a level of comfort for him, for sure, making sure he gets this place that he wants to shoot Mm it. That's what just kind of comes across, you know, and the house is in Toluca Lake. And I'm wondering, I know you had to go outside the Valley for at least one thing, I know. Jason Robards has. Oh, and that, and also the Hotel, the banquet yes. room, right? Yeah. So, a couple that was in of Valencia. things. Did Paul want to try to stay in the valley as much as possible?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, he didn't want to leave the valley. But he also knew that what he was looking for, some of the things were gone. Um, he wanted to film in his old apartment on Tahunga. And we finally got the building to let us in and consider our, our filming there. And we were almost there. And he went there with the DP and said, It's too small. We can't shoot it. Which is very rare for him because he'll shoot a closet.
1: (laughs) Well, it comes across even, you know, you look at Claudia's apartment.
2: That was what we were looking for.
1: And even in uh, the the behind-the-scenes documentary, I mean, you can see the dolly track going through doorway, you know, just like the bedroom door. Yeah. So, Paul, from the research I've done, after Boogie Nights really wanted to write a smaller movie, from what I understand, um, that didn't work out. Yeah, well, he, right. So he he wanted to do this a smaller movie, and he kept writing, and it became this bigger thing. But there still feels like there's an uh, in certain cases an independent film uh, mentality mindset. You know, shooting in these small places, doing what you can to make it work.
2: He was still a gorilla back then. He was still from the independent. You know, I'll, I'll steal this shot. I'll steal that shot. And we were a huge production. You know, we had Tom Cruise in yeah. movie, you know, and it's like, okay, Paul, you're too big a target. We can't steal that shot. No, you can't put a camera in the middle of Ventura Boulevard at five p.m. That's just not going to happen. <laughs> you know, we'll have to come here on a Sunday and create the traffic, and and you know, or pick another street. But that's not going to. Oh, come on! I can just run out there with the camera and I'll get I'll get it done. I, no, <laughs> right. And that that the producers would step in with me and. Help get a little control of it.
1: Were you a movie fan before you started working on movies? Like when oh, you God were doing is. real estate, you were into movies.
2: Oh yeah, no, I'll watch anything. There's only one movie I've ever turned off in my life, and that was Dude, Where's My Car? <laughs> <laughs> I got halfway through it and I just couldn't. I couldn't take it. It was just. But I did come back the next day and watch the second half because I had to finish it. I couldn't leave it un, undone. But I'll watch anything. There's some good
1: Valley stuff, actually. And dude, where's my car? I know the burger. The, well, the Chinese drive up. Yeah, that's over in Burbank. I know. I think I've been so, over yeah. there. Yeah. Now, for about the first 20 years of your career, you worked almost exclusively in feature right. film. But at a certain point, you transitioned into television, and you're working in television now. Still, is that right? yep. Why did you make that transition?
2: I had a uh, a nine year old and a 12 year old. And I had already missed two of each of their birthdays, being on the road, doing pictures. And I didn't want to do that anymore. And that was the time when all the filming was moving to either Louisiana or New Mexico. And I I didn't want to go away for six months anymore. And the producer I was working with at the time, I was doing one of Robin Williams' last films called um, License to Wed. Terrible picture. Horrible picture. I felt so bad for Robin because... In between takes, you know, he's going nuts and the crew is laughing so hard they can't they can't even focus the camera. And then he has to come back and do this role that was a bit odd. But we were doing that picture and the producer said, I'm going to do this television show. Do you want to do it? And I went, ooh, TV. And I started thinking about staying in town because, you know, you hear all the stories about television, how it's, you know, it's brutal and there's no appreciation, blah, blah, blah. And I went, well, I want to stay in town. I can give it a try. I can always, you know, leave. And it was the best move I ever made because I took about a 15% cut in pay and about an 85% boost in mental health. You know, it was, it was you know, they get to a certain point in TV. You've got eight days to prep an eight-day episode. On day eight, you have to have your locations picked. So even if they don't like the location, they pick it and we make it work. And and there's actually a lot more creativity involved in TV because you've got a three-location day, you can't move the company, and you need a hospital emergency room. But there's no hospital around. So you find a storefront with some glass doors and you throw in some set walls and a corridor and put a you know return wall in the back and have medical people going back and forth with gurneys and crap like that, and poof, it's an emergency room. you know.
1: Did you have to do any of that in Magnolia? And Magnolia was everything what... It shows up to be on screen.
2: Well, we did it in a way. For example, where the kid jumps off the roof at the beginning, the opening scene where he's trying to commit suicide. In the prologue, right, yes. his mom shoots him. The fall was in front of the Bryson Apartments down in MacArthur Park. The roof was over on Hollywood Boulevard. That makes sense. I was wondering, was it the Mayfair? Ah, God, I can't remember the name. It's, It's a really famous hotel... Uh, it's been there for years. It's just east of Western, on the north side of Hollywood Boulevard. It yeah, wasn't the Mayfair
1: I, then. It has that great view of the observatory and the and palm trees the and the, all that. Yeah. yeah,
2: everything else is. You know, the hospital was the old North Hollywood Hospital right here, you know, which is now condos. We right. tore it down. That was where. Uh, uh, what was the TV show? Scrubs. Shubs, Scrubs, yeah. Scrubs was there for years.
1: I think it opened in 1952. From the research I've done, as mm-hmm hospital and then in 98 late 90s i think it closed so it was really just a standing it was a standing
2: set yeah scrubs was there for however many years the show was on and and they just used it as a practical set and they built a bar in there you know that was the bar that they went to and every once in a while you could sneak in there with an outside company and get a couple of shots but they had it pretty well tied up
1: was the pharmacy across the street yeah because i was trying to figure that out and at first i i couldn't but later in the film when Julianne Moore's in her car um, with the carbon monoxide and everything, and she decides she's actually going to go back into the house, she reaches over and grabs the pharmacy bag, and it says A to Z yeah. Pharmacy, and it has the address on it. And when I find I type that in, it totally matches. Yeah. Do you see yourself ever going back to working on features?
2: I thought about that because now my kids are grown and out of the house and yes. having their own lives, and um, Unfortunately, I've developed a condition with my eyes that makes it tough for me to drive at night, and features I'd probably have to go out of town. I'm okay in L.A. because I know my way around. You know, I don't have to learn a new, new way to go. Um, so I'm probably destined to stay here in television, which I don't complain about. I think it's fine. It's been really good to me, paid for a house, put two kids through college. Parts of features I miss sometimes, but I think I've, I've come up with just as creative a thing Doing television.
1: If Paul Thomas Anderson wanted you to work on a movie, would you go? I'd be there in a heartbeat.
2: I'd be there. But I don't think he'll ever hire me again because on the last day of filming, we were in Big Bear. And uh, we had just done the forest fire scene, which was pretty amazing. And we were at a bar, and it was about 3 o'clock in the morning, and we were all pretty toasted. And I, Paul was sitting, talking with me. And I said, you know, I got to tell you, you're, you're the most brilliant filmmaker I've ever worked with. You're You're a genius. You went. Oh, thanks. I said you're also the biggest pain in the ass I've ever worked with, too. And he just roared with laughter. He went, "Oh God, we got to shoot another day." That's the quote of the day on the call sheet.
1: <laughs> also in that prologue, related to the Big Bear thing, there's a Reno casino. Yeah. Now, did you you went to Reno? John
2: Swaga's Nugget.
1: It's I know it's featured on the blackjack table. You see the Nugget logo on yeah. there. And at first. I was thinking to myself, did they really go to Reno to do this and then when I matched the logo and I started researching the hotel up there, I was like, they actually went there. So were there no casinos like in the LA area that you that's could That's where he shot Hard 8. So he had to go to <laughs> Reno to get this quick shot scene of Pat Oswalt yeah. at the at the table. Absolutely. But you so you say absolutely, mm-hmm. you know, but how many directors really can do that you know what i mean like not many right i mean (laughs) you know you're in la you could go to the commerce casino you could go to hollywood park at the time you know whatever oh they were scouted you know
2: okay
0: (laughs) i can't think of anything like that my career yeah you know it was was
2: fantastic it was like this is this is where we're going was it just one day of filming i think we did the motel room for the first half of the day and came back and did the casino stuff that night
1: Now, the shooting script of Magnolia, it's so specific in terms of the places, certain streets. I mean, you have mention of Van Nuys High School, Tarzana, Encino, Reseda, North Hollywood, Whitsitt, Ventura Boulevard. I mean, all of these things. And in the introduction of the published screenplay, Paul Thomas Anderson talks about how at first he was never really proud of the fact that he was from the Valley. He sort of always felt if he wasn't from New York or... Like the fields of Iowa That he wouldn't have anything to say Right And then once he sort of got over that He became very proud of the fact that He was from the Valley And it sort of totally relates to the Frank Mackey character Because in that interview She's trying to pull information out of him And says you grew up in the Valley And he says well mainly Hollywood And he tries to deflect all of that So that's really interesting and he also goes on to say, with Magnolia, he really wanted to make the mother of all San Fernando Valley movies. Do you think Magnolia is the mother of all San Fernando Valley movies?
2: It's pretty damn close. I mean, he really paints a love story of the valley in all its glory and in all its disgusting parts. And he blends them all together and says, this is, this is my life. This is where I grew up.
1: In your opinion, as a movie fan as well, are there other great San Fernando Valley movies?
2: What was that one? Seven Days in the Valley? Or two, Days in two, the two, valley. two Days in the love Valley. I love that. Yeah. It is. And, and Fast Times at Richmond High. Fast Times, yes. You know, that, that's just a classic that you just go back to and you quote after quote after quote. And, uh, but they shot all over the place in the valley.
1: Now, this is sort of a total trivial piece of information. Under the opening title of Magnolia, there are thomas guide shots and i actually pulled the thomas guide out to see where those were but it's not the valley it's actually hollywood through downtown it's again completely geeky thing but i just had to go and uh, and look it up to see you know what i mean
2: it was one thing i still use the thomas guide because the thomas guide if it's yellow that's unincorporated la county if it's a color that means you're in that town Mm. you're within those city limits so that's what santa monica boulevard it's route two. It's a state highway. You need CHP officers to do trap running shots on Santa Monica Boulevard, and you got to pull a Caltrans permit.
1: Can you talk about scouting with Paul Thomas Anderson and what that process is like? Is he um I don't know does, is he enthusiastic or does he kind of keep things more to himself, or what's that process like?
2: Well, I'll tell you the first day we got into a scout van, he tossed his cigarettes on the dash and he started flipping through the radio and he said, "Look." I'm the youngest and I'm the richest guy in the van, so I'm going to choose what we listen to. <laughs> 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 we went okay, and uh, now he was—he was very forthcoming with information because he knew if he didn't give us the information, we couldn't find him what he wanted. And he was very good at expressing his distaste for things, but never in front of a property owner. You know, always when we got back in the van. Um, he pissed me off one day enough that I handed my book to Joanne Seller, the producer, and said, here you go, you do this, and I started walking off, and she ran after me. I basically had quit at that point. What did he do? He made this snide remark about, you know, well, if you find it for the right location, blah, 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 or something like that. So it was something like that, that, just an off-the-cuff thing, and I, I didn't appreciate it. Right <laughs> at that particular moment, because there was a lot of pressure to get this show going, and uh, you know, we kissed and made up after that. But it's interesting
0: that I've heard a few of those stories. And almost not all the time, but a lot of the times, the manager will come back and it's they're better for it. Mm-hmm. You know, that they, they've gained a little respect in somebody's eyes, or you know, the other person, you know realizes they shouldn't have been like that yeah. it's interesting that you
2: sometimes you have to bark back yeah yeah no that's true the only person i never barked at was was bob zemeckis he just had a presence about him that it's going to be my way or we're not doing it you know and his way was usually absolutely correct you know
1: We've already gone over the f- fact that Paul is very specific about it, what he wants. He wanted the Foxfire Room. It's got to be the Foxfire Room. However, did you find that locations would still inform him and inspire him? Like he doesn't—he's not going to go into the electronics store until you actually take him there. So I'm wondering if a space will inform his camera moves that he does at all or he's already locked down?
2: Well, that's why he was so specific about the locations because he already had the shot in his head. He knew in her apartment that he wanted to put the dolly track through the door and he wanted to come from the living room into the bedroom and be up and over on them making love in the bed, you know? And, And the final shot of the movie where she's just staring into the camera as her mother hugs her.
1: Now, do you know that stuff? Like, you know, when you're going to a location, again, when I like the Solomon and Solomon Electronics store, so the camera starts from inside the store as William H Macy walks in the front door, and then it comes and meets him, walks all the way through the store. Mm-hmm. Is that communicated to you at all before, or like, do you and or being familiar with maybe Boogie Nights, do you kind of know what maybe he wants to do in a location before getting there?
2: Um no, because he's what I do know is he's asked for this much space for the and then when we get there, he starts talking about the shot and how it's gonna be. So you find out when you get there. And if you're scouting several different stores, which I think we only had to scout two or three, the when we ended up at LA Popular and, and Reseda, you know, he was he was good. But if you, if you went to a store and he would walk you through the shot and then he could show you why it wasn't working for him. I need to be able to get over here. I need to be able to get the camera back here. Can we take this wall out? Can we you know, go through that door? And sometimes I'd say, well, can you turn around and do it this way? Because you've got the room here, you got all that. And he'd look at it and go, that's a good idea, but no, I need it this way. And, you know, you just keep knocking him down.
1: Now, was it just a coincidence that you were up there at L.A. Popular Furniture, which is right around the corner from the Reseda Theater, just, where
2: Boogie Nights starts? Just a coincidence. Just a coincidence. And when, and when we were there, he was like, oh, this brings back memories, you know, when we were outside in the parking lot, because he was basically outside the, the theater parking lot, you know.
1: That brings up something else. You also have to do the Raining Frogs there. Yeah. Two. And you have to close down that intersection of oh, Sherman yeah. Way and Reseda. So are you finding the store first, or are you working backwards from a street that you know you can control? How is that process no all we
2: had to find the store first. And then it was up to me and the team to convince all the people without spending too much money that they were going to let us close down the intersection for a couple of nights. And to convince the gas station. Yeah, that was a big deal because that's where William H. Macy and and, uh, John C. Riley hide from the frogs under the gas station overhang, you know. And then there's frogs falling out, and you you get special effects guys up on ladders throwing frogs there. And then a lot of that was CG, you know. We couldn't drop these frogs on the roof of this gas station because it would dent it. So we would find the location and then have to make the surroundings work. And sometimes finding the location was the simplest part of the deal. Because we had to shut down that intersection for two blocks in every direction in order to get the the car driving through and the frogs coming down you know. So you just do it.
1: Now just being a, a movie fan outside of you know, take yourself out of actually having worked on Magnolia, do you think that boogie nights and magnolia are part of the same Universe, Like, would the would the characters who are older in Magnolia possibly have gone to the Hot Tracks disco? Do you imagine oh, sure. this is the same world? Some
2: of, them, some of them would have, most definitely. Some of them would have gone to that place, you know, because it was all part of Paul's world.
1: Now, that intersection, so the Sherman Way and Reseda intersection, yeah, and the Laurel Canyon and Victory intersection where yeah. Valley Plaza is, one thing that you notice upon watching it a few times, is that the street signs were changed. Victory was turned into Magnolia, mm-hmm. and Sherman Way was turned into Laurel Canyon. Right. What is the process? Or is it just, you know, basic permitting and stuff? What is, is there a special process that has to go into actually changing city street signs?
2: Yeah. The, the, the signs on the corner, the smaller signs that you could reach with a 10-step ladder, those we just cover. We just make a little plate the size of the street sign, and we just pop it on there with double stick tape or a little uh, what they call monkey snot it's the rubbery stuff that holds your mail together And because it only has to be up there for a few hours the big signs over the intersection we have to get the city come in or we have to get we'll have the city come in and take them down so that there's no sign there or we'll get permission from the city to go up with a condor and put our own signs on there or scissor lift Get up there and put our own signs on there. So there's a whole permitting process. Is there a
1: special permitting process for throwing frogs on the street?
2: I had to list it on the permit. Yeah. I said dumping frogs. It's not just general special effects. It's. No, because they want to know. You want to give them as much information as possible, especially in Los Angeles, because they've seen it all. So the more information you give them and tell them up front, the better chance you have of being able to do it on the day without a fireman stepping in and saying, "Hey, I don't see this on the permit. You know, I don't know if I can let you do this because now you're stopping the company, and time is money. You know, it's so twenty thousand dollars an hour for a company to stand idle." You
1: teach, your have taught, and teach some classes through the union. Yeah, right? I'm
2: actually the, the the chair of the education committee. For oh, education managers. why is
1: it important to you to pass on? you know the things you've learned over your career
2: well there's about 700 location managers in los angeles i used to say 20 of them know what they're doing Um, that seems high thank you (laughs) (laughs) i agree and there's a lot of people that'll be mad at me for saying that but it's true I, i the one of the main reasons i want to educate them is corny as it is the the locations that's our field that's where we grow things that's And we have to be able to go back. And when somebody burns a location up, it's like a farmer going out and just throwing bags of salt on his field. Nothing's going to grow there. You're never going to go back there. And if someone's not doing our job correctly, I spend more time cleaning up other people's messes who have been there before, before I can do my own work. So that's why I want to train people to do it the right way. It's not that hard. It's not rocket science. It's just common sense and logistics. But for some people, that's very challenging. Um, so that, that's one of my main reasons for being so adamant about educating the people coming into the business. Where was the studio for the game show? Uh, it's down on Cahuenga um, between Santa Monica and Melrose. And it's one of the oldest studios in town. And I can't for the life of me remember the name. Anybody got a phone? You know, We had to find a studio that would let us come in for the amount of time that we needed and not charge us too much money because we had a budget to stick within, especially as many days as we ended up going over. We needed every penny we had.
1: Is there anything that's different about shooting in a studio when you're using it actually as a practical location, now when you actually have to use the hallways?
2: But we didn't shoot the hallways then where were the hallways shot <laughs> the hallways were all at NBC oh there you go <laughs> former NBC now Burbank Studios which now I think Warner Brothers has purchased them yes right I, I think Warner it's I, a, Warner Brothers is selling the ranch that's right and moving over to the Burbank Studios well that's interesting they, I didn't
1: know they were completely separate locations
2: yeah right up until you go into the studio you're at NBC when you go through the studio was it Renmar they probably changed the name by yeah was Red Studios here. down there what is it? Maybe red. It could be. Yeah, I think they've changed the name. It used to be. Oh a yeah, red names. was something else, right? Yeah, that. Yeah, that's it. That's where we were.
1: You said Earl Partridge's house wasn't actually. It was written to be in Encino,
2: right? But it was in Northeast Pasadena. Beautiful, wow. beautiful house. Oh God, post and beam, hardwood floors. That the grips managed to put a drywall screw through some plywood and put a about an eight foot gouge in there. Beautiful hardwood floors. that we had to fix. (laughs) The Earl Partridge, I I don't know if he actually saw that specific house in his head, but when he saw that house, that was what he needed. There's another thing that you wouldn't realize, but we shot the frogs going into the pool at the house in Northeast Pasadena. The frogs entering the pool was us throwing shot bags into the water at a pool up in Big Bear. (laughs) Why'd you do that? Because... They needed, the ILM guys needed something to track going into the water, so we used shot bags, you know, little five-pounders, and threw them in, and they made the right splash and the right trail of bubbles as they go down, and then they just followed the shot bag and changed that into a frog, and then the frogs would swim away.
1: The hotel where the seminar is, the Frank T.J. Mackey seminar, is written as the Burbank Holiday Inn. Mm -hmm. But you didn't go to the
2: Burbank Holiday Inn. No, we went to the Hyatt Valencia. And that was I. I that was just that Paul wanted this vanilla conference room. And it needed to be the right size because we had the budget for X number of extras. So it needed to be packed. So we had to find the right size room that we could fill it with the number of extras we were allowed and put a big enough stage for Tom to do his thing, which was... Fantastic. I mean Phenomenal, he, he right? came up with all of that himself. He created that himself. He he was very excited and he came into Hall with a video that he shot at his house in his screening room, using the stage in his screening room at his house and did the whole T J Mackey thing, you know, the the whole speech, respect the you know, yes. and spoil the hmm. Yes. Um, <laughs> that was that was all him ad libbing that and coming well, up with you know. Using Paul's words, but embellishing.
1: There's the great date scene between John C. Riley and Melora Walters, and it was written as Billingsley's. That's what it was. The one here in the valley and the, the golf I'm course? With it, the
2: golf course. Named after Barbara. Yeah. That's it right. The, it was the Billingsley family that owned it.
1: Yes. And now I think it's their event space at the golf course. And yeah, I think they I, still I, call it the Billingsley Room. Yeah, I, think.
2: But I, I believe the restaurant closed. It right? did. Yeah. It
1: closed in 2004. It's a great restaurant. Well, it looks great. And again, you never really get a full shot of the restaurant, but behind them, you see the waterfalls mm. going and the mm. light on them, the re- reflecting off the waterfalls is really wonderful. Okay. I think, it, I don't know. I'm, are you, you want to drink? <laughs> Anybody? <laughs> no. Okay. Another time. It's, it's light out now. When we got here, it was dark. I want to thank you again, Tim, for joining us here today at the Foxfire Room. It's really been great talking to you. My pleasure. You listeners can visit the Foxfire Room. It's open long hours. I think generally it's 7, to 7 a.m. to 2 a.m., but today and I think on weekends it might actually open at 6 because the doors were open when we got here today. The Foxfire Room is at 12516 West Magnolia Boulevard in Valley Village in the San Fernando Valley. If you've been enjoying our show, please share it with others who are interested in the world of locations or just filmmaking in general. And we want to make this show bigger, better for all of you. So if you're interested in sponsoring On Location with Jared Callen, please reach out to us at jared at onlocationpodcast.com. That's J-A-R-E-D at onlocationpodcast.com. Dot com, and we'd be happy to provide you with some information. Make sure to follow us on Facebook at On Location with Jared Cowan, on Twitter at On Location PC, on Instagram at On Location Podcast, and please visit our website at OnLocationPodcast.com and check out some of our upcoming film tours that we do here in L.A. Thanks for listening and joining us on location. See you next time.